Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. And if you are listening to this podcast, you are committing a thought crime on theft day. That is correct, everybody. It is National Thievery Day to the Private Federal Reserve. I am your host, Jake Counts. It is the 15th day of April 2014. And joined with me on the broadcast this evening is Josh Wiley of the Journalistic Revolution. Say hello, Josh. Uh, how's it going, Jake? Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, man. Thanks for always for coming on. Um, joining me a little bit later will be Robert Wasman of the aforementioned Journalistic Revolution. And we're going to be talking about theft. Of all things on this glorious day of taxation without representation or something like that. I don't know. Taxation without um, a voice of the people being heard in the Senate? What, what, what should we call this? I don't know. What, do you, what would you call it, Josh? What would you call it today? Is, is it just loving hug day from, from, um, from our dear uh, overlords and oligarchs? I just think theft day sums it up pretty, pretty uh, succinctly. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a sad week, though, because not only do we have the gun of the state uh, being uh, pointed in our faces fairly overtly, um, but I've, we've lost uh, uh, probably one of the most prolific researchers of the 20th and 21st century this uh this past Sunday evening, and that's Mike Rupert. Uh, he's the guy who I credit for, uh, I guess, quote-unquote, waking me up with his uh, Truth and Lies of 9-11 presentation mm-hmm. that was made, uh, what was it, something like a month after the event itself, uh, just groundbreaking research done in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, uh, Mike Rupert uh, took his own life, and it, the saddest part is it doesn't look like there was foul play involved. Um he was just a guy who, after being uh, shot at by LAPD, harassed by the Bush administration, had his life turned upside down by the feds, uh, they wore him down. And uh, it's incredibly sad. Uh, I don't know. Felt like I got punched in the gut earlier today. And then I, and then I found out it was tax day. But... Yeah, well, you get the double gut punch. Actually, that would be like the gut and then the nut punch. You get the nut punch from the fed and the gut punch. You're telling me. But all, all I wanted to say is that... Um, yeah, if anyone has not checked out his work, uh, please do so. I mean, his videos are all over YouTube. But the first episode of my podcast, uh, Mind the Control over at Journalistic Revolution, is essentially a tour de force of Mike Rupert's, uh, a lot of his, his best research, in my opinion, on narco-trafficking, mm-hmm. which I think is, uh, are some of his best contributions to the field. Uh, so, yeah, I, if, if, you're, if you're really itching to, to find out who this incredible man was and you haven't listened to Mike Rupert before, I think that's a really good place to start. Absolutely, and I'll link to that in the show notes um, and post it on the We Are Not Cattle homepage. The reason I haven't posted any show notes is really haven't covered a ton of news. I've covered a whole bunch of different topics that I thought were interesting that I try to, um, I guess, expound to the people and, and get us thinking outside the box and, and get us um, questioning the the all-important status quo that um, looms over our heads every day as we have people that just troll through life Thinking that they're getting a return today for some odd reason, I still haven't gotten. I still haven't figured that out. I actually had a buddy of mine um, message me right before we came on, Josh, and it was really funny because he, how dare he be an independent contractor um, for uh, you know trying to make money on his own? And uh, here's what he had to say: um, 
about uh, Theft Day. He's a, he's a fellow libertarian, um, does some really good work. And so I said, happy Theft Day to you. I hope you're enjoying it. And he said, being an independent contractor, I have to write a check today, which especially pisses me off. And I wish that everyone had to write a check instead of feeling good about their quote-unquote return. He said, having to prepare your own taxes to determine how much money they're going to steal from you is like going out in the yard and picking the switch that you're going to be beaten with. So he really does make a lot of good points there. And um, let's start out the broadcast before Robert joins us. He's going to be jumping on here in a bit, I guess, um, because I do have an actual quote of somebody – of somebody filling out their taxes. I, I, I got a friend of mine from the NSA that sent me um, some audio of a guy doing his taxes on um, on TurboTax, and I'll play that audio for you guys here in a little bit. But um, anyway, it was uh, it's interesting. It, it's just fascinating. But um, you know, to start out theft day, Josh, what um, what do you think, man? What do you think we should start out with the history of the the private Federal Reserve, which we owe our money to, or do you think that we should just define theft um, the way that we see it and why? Or here's a better idea. Why don't I just pose the question to you? Why do you believe that taxes are theft, Josh? Well, I, I just want to say that I hope everyone out there has declared their bitcoins and cryptocurrencies as assets. Oh yes, absolutely, because <laughs> you need to you need to claim those, and if you bought any. Make sure that you claim those two because they have all the keys and they can hack everything. And uh, Heartbleed's still out there, um, so I'm sure that they, they put that out in the um, in the universe to, to grab those SSL certificates and, and all that good stuff. And track everything we're doing because they don't do that anyway. But go ahead, Josh. Go ahead. Oh, man. Well, I, I guess it's, it really is a question of where we want to start this discussion. Do we, I mean, do we want to start it from a philosophical standpoint? I think uh, the why it's theft is... Uh, is fairly overtly clear. I mean, if you if you use clear, if you, if people are just listening to this for the first time, because yeah, yeah, I mean, I, we have a lot of people sharing the show with uh, friends and loved ones that do that do really like the message and do like what we talk about here. So let's um let's talk about it. Why why are taxes theft? Just um, well, yeah, but 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 expanding on that theory, uh, it, you know, if we view you know the. Uh, the, the production of human labor and your efforts uh, expended through time as the most valuable resource, okay. uh, then uh, theft of that is literal, quite literally theft of your life, te- life energy. Uh, so being asked to pay a percentage, uh, a non-voluntary percentage on your life's work, regardless of whether or not uh, it, it, is, it is sizable or small again, or is going to a good cause or not, and we can discuss all of those things. Sure. Um, but if if the element of force is is used to coerce that life energy from you then that is theft all right so let's let's define the term coercion when you say coercion you mean that if the if i don't if i don't pay taxes well let's just say it like this if you don't pay taxes typically what happens is you get harassed you may have people come and point guns at you and I guess that that's where you're going with, with the term coercion is the fact that you know in the back of your mind if you don't pay your taxes that the state as always – and I think it's their only – once again, touchdown for the state. Touchdown. Every play is a touchdown. Um, the state's only, only um, method of settling any dispute is typically um, – I don't want to say only, but majority of time – is the threat of violence. Would you agree? Absolutely. This is very basic uh, Skinner-esque uh, negative conditioning, right? 
Okay. It, it, they, they, taxpayers quite literally are lab rats to, uh, to, to these people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's sad that, that so many people have now not only been conditioned to, uh, to pay the tax, uh, but, but don't even view it as paying this, this arbitrary fee to keep the backs of the enforcement agents off of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they view it essentially as a, as a patriotic duty. Sure. Uh, the phrase, I pay my taxes, mm-hmm. is essentially used in, in, uh, as a replaceable term for I am a patriotic American, right? Absolutely. And the only thing that's certain in life is what? Uh, death and taxes, supposedly. Correct. But. Correct. but it's interesting when you look at the history of the income tax and, and where we got this um, magical device from. Uh, I've got a clip. It's about seven minutes here, and it really it did a really good job. And so I'll clip. I'll I'll put this. Um, I'll put this in the YouTube, or actually I'll put this in the show notes. It's a YouTube clip, and it's called the Federal Reserve explained in seven minutes. So it's going to be a little bit less than that. It's probably going to be about six minutes long, and um, I think that everybody, uh, Josh and myself, might be a little bored with this. But if you're new to this theory, if you're new to the idea of libertarianism, voluntarism, uh, anarcho-capitalism, all of these nice little words that we like to throw around and, and have debates and discussions over, I think that this would be very, very interesting for you to contemplate um, from just the, the rudimentary standpoint of what the Federal Reserve is, what it does. And then um, I hate to use the with them analogy because we're not in sales class right now, but it really is with them. It's like, what's in it for me? You know, do um, what is it? What you know, what does it do? And what's in it for me? And we're going to see that there's absolutely nothing in it for you except for um, guns being pointed at you if you don't pay them. And it's a arbitrary number, and it's a also an arbitrary tax because technically you don't have to pay it. Everybody, you don't have to pay the income tax. But if you don't, what's going to happen, Josh? Uh, well, see, that, that's why uh, you shouldn't really say you don't have to pay the income tax. Technically, you don't have to do anything in life, but the consequences for, for doing or not doing something may be graver than you originally anticipate. So, Absolutely. Um, but um, I meant legally, by law, you are not bound to pay taxes. Uh, yeah, I mean le- legally the Constitution is supposedly still in effect as well, but <laughs> we can definitely debate that after this segment. So I'm going to play this clip, um, and then on the backside, hopefully Robert will join us because I really do want to play this clip of because um, it, it was really a it was really kind of eye opening to me, and I felt um, I felt good. I felt good after listening to this. I felt better about paying my fair share. So here's the clip, everybody. Enjoy but most likely don't understand what it is or how it works. The Federal Reserve, referred to as the Fed, is a central bank that many economists refer to as the biggest robbery ever enacted on the American people. The reason for this is because the Federal Reserve is neither part of the federal government nor does it have any reserves. Yet, this single organization controls the money supply of the most powerful country in the world. The Fed is very diligent in hiding the fact that they are not part of the government. The last thing they want the American people to fully understand is that our government does not control our own money. In order to achieve this, they were very clever and decided to call their institution the Federal Reserve. And by labeling themselves this way, the general public never thought twice about who was in control of the country's money supply. If the Federal Reserve is not part of the government, 
Then who controls this private organization and how did this come to be? The answer to this question is what changed the course of our country forever. In November of 1910, a secret meeting took place of six bankers and economic policymakers who represented the financial elite of the Western world. It was hosted at the J.P. Morgan Estate on Jekyll Island in Georgia. In attendance was Senator Nelson W. Aldrich, Abram Pyatt Andrew Jr., Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Frank Vanderlip, President of National City Bank of New York, Henry P. Davidson, Senior Partner of J.P. Morgan & Company, Charles D. Norton, President of First National Bank of New York, Paul Warburg, Director of Wells Fargo, Benjamin Strong, the emissary for J.P. Morgan, and coincidentally, the first president of the Federal Reserve. Years later, Frank Vanderlip referred to this meeting as the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. This meeting was so secret at the time that not even the names of those who attended were mentioned to the servants who lived and worked on the island. The men who attended came on a late-night train, claiming to be on their way to a hunting expedition but instead, these bankers met with Senator Nelson Aldrich to draft what would eventually become the Federal Reserve Act. This private meeting attended by some of the most powerful men in America was strategically designed to take control of our country's money supply and to achieve ultimate power in America. Meyer Amshed Rothschild, one of the most powerful European bankers of his time, stated it best when he said, permit me to issue and control the money of the nation and I care not who makes its laws. On December 23, 1913, two days before Christmas, when most people in Congress were home with their families, the Federal Reserve Act was signed into law by President Woodrow Wilson. That single act, however small it may seem, transferred the control of our monetary system from our government into the hands of some of the wealthiest men in our country. Putting into law the Federal Reserve Act gave unlimited power to a few wealthy banking institutions in America. The Fed has the power to issue currency, manipulate interest rates, and run secret bailouts. Yet Congress and the President are not allowed full oversight over this powerful organization. The Federal Reserve enjoys a monopoly over the creation of our nation's money and credit, but for 100 years, they have never been completely transparent and accountable about it. And we don't have to look back too far from today to see what it looks like in real life. When testifying before Congress in 2009, Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke refused to disclose which institutions received trillions of dollars in these bailouts and loans or give our representatives details about what deals were being made. So my question to you is, Bernie Sanders, will you everybody. tell the American people to whom you lent 2.2 trillion of their dollars. Will you tell us who got that money and what the terms are of those agreements? Hundreds and hundreds of banks, any bank or, that has uh, access to the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve's discount. Will you tell us who they are? No. In an interview with Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, he makes the stunning assertion that conducting a full audit of the Federal Reserve, something never before done in its 100-year history, is a line that we don't want to cross. To be denied full transparency of these transactions after U.S. taxpayers contributed over $16 trillion to these bailouts and loans is unthinkable and unconstitutional. 
It is our right as American citizens to know where our money is being spent. It's very ironic that if you don't give the IRS full transparency with your finances, you go to jail. But if you're a private organization of elite bankers that controls the money supply of a country, you're free to do as you please without full oversight. Yeah, that's about right. This private organization is arrogant in the fact that the same accounting laws that apply to the rest of America do not apply to them. There is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. Their control appears to be unlimited, and 2008 is the most recent example of how much power the Fed actually has on our country. Many of us were told in private conversations that if we voted against this bill on Monday, that the sky would fall, the market would drop two or 3,000 points the first day, another couple thousand the second day, and a few members were even told that there would be martial law in America if we voted no. That's what I call fear-mongering. The elite banking institutions took trillions of dollars worth of risk, and when they lost their bets, they threatened politicians to use taxpayer money to bail them out, or else we would face an Armageddon type of scenario. This historic change of power in America is again why many economists refer to it as the biggest robbery ever enacted on the American people. There you go, everybody, and a little brief history of why we call it Theft Day. Yay! It's so much fun. Josh, what did you make of that little video? Fairly accurate and dense for the... I mean, you and I can go back and really dig it up if, you, if, you, if we wanted to, if we so pleased, and talk about why these people were here, who did they represent, and well, what interest they had in controlling the money supply of America. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we really have to ask ourselves, and I guess this is up to you, Jake. You are the host, after all. Um, where, What kind of episode do you want this to be? Uh, I guess are we assuming that your listening audience uh, is being introduced to this information for the first time, in which case I would say that, that video is a decent introduction. And if not, then I would say that uh, that that video is interesting in the way that it kind of presents some of this information, you know, talking about this this inherently good system that has fallen to this evil corruption because you know that in and of itself is a form of deception, right? Right, absolutely. So let's um let's break down the the challenges. Like, if you were looking at it from let's say thirty thousand feet, and and I hate to use all these stupid corporate analogies, but shoot, guys, I was in corporate America for, for a long time, so that's all I know. But if you were looking at it from the top down, um, the video does and the audio does really kind of give a broad swath to to what happened and, well, to, and to and to just the players that were involved. And that's basically all you wanted to get over. So now that we've got that established, we know who the players are. We know what um, the system. We know the public players are. Correct. That was very correct. So let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the system itself. Um, once again, using theft or the coercion or the the fear of getting locked up or put in prison or um, sh- you know ended up um, uh, su- murder suiciding yourself just out of you know sure sac- circumstance, which has happened to many people that have either denied to um, denied to pay their taxes or people that write books like. Um, Oh, what's his name? Um, what's his name's dad? Um, oh gosh, still in jail. The guy, the the, the gold guy. Um, oh, gold. Oh god, the big. Eric uh, uh, Jim Sinclair. No, 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 no. Oh gosh, this is really gonna kill me now. This is really gonna kill me. Um, jeez, 
he he debated he he debated Stefan Molyneux on gold versus Bitcoin. Uh, oh, Peter Schiff. There we go. His father wrote a book about the Federal Reserve and went to jail and mm. still in jail. Ta-da! Interesting. Yeah, so that just go ahead, man. You, well, uh, the the thing I wanted to say is that that video is a great introduction to some of these topics. It's a good intro. It's a good starting point to go and you know, read a book or watch a docu- a longer documentary. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say watch a few of them because, and, and here's what I, I, I think is the problem, is that when so many, when people come on to this inform- information about the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. uh, they stop at a surf- surface level analysis. They watch a documentary like The Money Masters. Right. Or they watch a documentary like um, uh, the, the, the Mises Institute put out one. I forget the name of it. It's another one that I've seen. Or they'll, they'll go even, even at, a, at a lower basal level and, and watch a, a cartoon like The American Dream, sure. uh, which, which is full, rife with... It, it, it's, it's very entertaining, but it's rife with, with misquotes and, mm. and incorrect dates and facts and all this, this other sort of stuff. But what it really does is it, it perpetuates this meme where it's this kind of shadowy cabal of bankers who just kind of do this for power. Sure. Uh, and it's evil and corrupt and bad and yada, yada, yada. Right. And it completely obfuscates the, the second level, the action, the level where all the action takes place is, why are they doing this? Mm-hmm. Who, who did they set this fund up for? Right. And where is this money ultimately going? And that's the question that I think is far more interesting than, than, that, than you know, some of these more surface-level analyses. Mm-hmm. So when, when you see a name like J.P. Morgan... Mm-hmm. And you find that J.P. Morgan is involved in the creation of the Office for Strategic Services, the CIA, funds CIA assets, is also involved in the creation of the Federal Reserve, sure. is, is involved in, uh, in the tanking of America's money supply even before the Federal Reserve system uh, with the manipulation of, of, of essentially gold certificates right. uh, that were privately issued by his bank. Right. We see someone who's a deep political actor on many levels in many, in many different aspects of american life for a very long period of time and so also, we have that so we have to ask ourselves right and also causing the panic of 08 by calling in one-third of his short-term debt yep yeah exactly that's what i was referring to yep. um so we have that and and of course being being in, instrumental in or in uh, organizing the gold standard that was required to make that panic in the first place right so these people are thinking 20 30 40 years in advance uh, at the very least, in in terms of the creation of the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. so we have to ask ourselves when we see these same people involved in so many different events, mm-hmm. uh, we we you do have to, it begs the question, what's going on here? Right. So I mean, we're gonna let's do it, man. Let's just take a deep dive here in a little bit. Um, first of all, let me go to this audio clip. It doesn't look like we're gonna get Robert. I think he's uh, I think he's taking a nap. But um, Josh, this was a um, this was audio, ladies and gentlemen. I cannot believe that I have this. This is audio of somebody actually um, sitting at their home computer and getting a call from the, um, from the IRS and as they're walking through their TurboTax. So um, here it is. Drop your coat and grab your toes. What? I'm going to show you where the wild goose goes. Sorry. I had to have some humor in there, everybody. But that was off the of Super Troopers. I thought, that was, I thought that was very, very appropriate for today. Most people, most people don't even realize what's going on today, so just thought I'd have a little humor. But um, all right, so now that we've gotten the humor out of the way, let's get into 
Let's get into the strategery, which is not a word, but I just made it one. So let's get into the strategery behind creating the Federal Reserve System and what other system this really mimics as we, as we look back in history and the reason they chose gold, the reason that we have all of these little stipulations that come together in a nicely wrapped little bow. And it looks like we're about to get Robert Wiseman here in a moment. I just saw him sign in. But um, Josh, let's briefly talk about this. Where do, you, where do you think we should start with the actual setting up of the Federal Reserve System? Should we start out with the players behind the scenes that really funded this thing and started the ball rolling in order to not only control the currency and credit of the United States, but this is something they tried over and over and over again uh, to establish this. And it wasn't typically... Once again, it wasn't typically because you read your history book, it'll tell you, oh, it was just so we could do three things, so that we could uh, quell unemployment, uh, we could, um, we could, or keep unemployment down, we could also make sure that we don't run, uh, have runaway inflation, and we can have a um, stable currency that doesn't create a lot of booms and busts. Hold on one second. Um, why is it telling me that I have to put a call on hold? That's very odd. Let me see if I can add him to the call. Uh, Josh, I lost your video, I think. Josh, you there? Did I lose everyone? What happened? Hello? Did I lose everyone? Uh, no, Robert was trying to call me instead of you. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Very, oh, uh, so you had to go on hold. Okay. Yeah, so it put me on hold, and I I, he, I told him to call you back. But a- anyways... Welcome to Last uh, Radio, everybody. All right, let's yeah. get on here before we start diving into this stuff, because I want him to kind of chime in and, and put his two cents in. So is he calling me now? Is that what's happening? Uh, that's what I told him to do. But before we put the two cents in, or any sense for that matter, I, I, I really think that we should kind of outline where we want to go with this discussion, because okay. the, the who... The who aspect of the Federal Reserve and the why aspect of the Federal Reserve are very interesting topics, and they're very important topics. Mm-hmm. But they're also topics that I don't think uh, we can we can really cover in in 34 minutes. Um, so I, I don't know. How do you feel about you know really tackling the question of what is money, examining the history of money as it has been known in America, and and really talking about potential solutions for for this kind of the problem that we face today that that we have this that let's do that that's a very good suggestion robert um just to let you know um we we just basically played um you haven't missed much played an audio clip uh talked about the establishment of the federal reserve system who who is involved why when we've got all that out of the way so we're just kind of kicking back and forth how we were going to approach this topic and and josh says let's uh let's talk about let's talk about money what is money and according to Ben Bernanke, what Josh just held up a couple of minutes ago is um, is not money. Bitcoin's not money. They're just uh, assets. So let's – Commodity, man. Absolutely. So um, thank you, Robert Wiseman, for joining us from the Journalistic Revolution as well as Josh Wiley. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, the history of money and where this um, Federal Reserve System came from or even fractional reserve lending came from. That's a, that's a pretty good place for us to start. Uh, I got a Bill Still clip if you guys want to hear that about fractional reserve lending, or if you guys just want to talk about it, we can do either one. It's up to you. Well, I, sorry, Robert, go ahead. I was going to say, I, le- I, I leave that to your discretion, sir. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I'm I'm not, you know, God of my own yeah. show, but I am well, I mean, show. I think fractional reserve lending is really easy to understand. It's when so Let's he, go over it really quick. 
It's when essentially money changers who hold you at the time, it was gold and silver or other precious metals on deposit, uh, and you pay them essentially a small fee to, to keep your gold and silver or whatever you're storing safe for you. Mm-hmm. These people realized that uh, as they were giving out certificates that would be redeemable in this gold and silver, that they could uh, print more certificates than they had in metal and make a lot of money that way. And the reason that they could do that is because of one thing, that not everyone came to get their money at the same time. Mm-hmm. So well, and, and one other thing. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I would say, for at least if we're talking about it in a historical context, yeah. uh, there, there is, and I, I don't mean to, 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 to sound uh, like uh, uh, some kind of anti-Semite here, because I'm certainly not, nor do I feel that this... Uh, "Quote unquote," you know, international conspiracy or the Anglo-American establishment is an exclusively Zionist enterprise, but it bears. It is no. You're, it is no. Josh is a John Berger. Everybody, just get ready. Yeah, no. I mean, I feel like I have uh, spent a significant degree of my uh, my research efforts uh, debunking a lot of what the John Birch Society has to say. But all right, so continue. That, that that being said, uh, usury is the the absolutely the only reason this could happen in the in the ancient world, mm-hmm. uh, which was a practice of of only one of the Trinity based religions, and that is Judaism. You weren't allowed to to loan on interest in uh, as a Muslim or uh, or Christian. Well, and that's you know that was one of the reasons that all of this came about. And like you said, you're not trying to point fingers; we're just being factually accurate. So um, what do you think, um, Robert, from your perspective, what do you think is really important for people to understand about, um, about money? So let's talk about what is money. Let's, uh, what would you define money as? Money, I mean, in its most basic form, is just a medium of exchange in which two parties agree on the value. Okay. So uh, Bitcoin, in, by that definition, would Bitcoin be considered money? As it's being used now, yes. Okay. But does it, but does it have... <laughs> speculative qualities and is it it's basically it bitcoin is uh spendable stocks or spendable assets or or spendable assets commodities i mean i mean if if we want to be honest about it okay it's 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 is is bitcoin is bitcoin a commodity is it a physical thing because that is what a commodity is as defined by the marketplace okay well then I, i stick with my original term stock there we go. Uh, <laughs> well, well, no, but I mean, I hate to parse terms here, but if we are gonna, if we're gonna be uh, as three members of uh, of the trivium cult here, I, I think it, it would be important to, to to pose the question. You know, what if I, I hate? To, uh, I don't know how much we really want to delve into this, but because it is such an interesting topic. But what is? I mean, it, this is the reason we have the format we have. I mean, it, it creates discussions. We have a topic in mind, but. Sometimes we stick to it, sometimes we don't. I do want to talk about the Bundy Ranch here at the end. I, I think it's going to be another Waco situation, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so, uh, Robert, I guess to, to Josh's question. Um, oh, well, the question was, uh, I guess, is Bitcoin uh, a, a digitally liquid credit class? Because you, it, I guess that's what stocks are. They're, they're a form of, of credit. And right now, the Federal Reserve note, it's a, it's a, it's a very liquid form of debt, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Bitcoin is, uh, there is work expended, and you you know you get some kind of dollar output for that, right? Correct. Um, but I think that one of Murray Rothbard's most important ideological contributions uh, to the definition of money was that he says that money is not a mere token of exchange; it is a commodity. It's something that has to have utility in the physical world outside of being a token of exchange. 
And the thing that I would add to, to this definition of money is, you know, there are a lot of things that, that, that can function as a barter system, but it's important to note that gold and silver, uh, I'm not uh, saying that gold and, we should have some kind of exclusive gold or silver standard by any means, mm-hmm. uh, but they've been used as money time and time again mm-hmm. simply because they are uh, so immune to, to, to perishability. Right. There's a reason why we don't carry around bags of rice, right? Absolutely, and there's also um, that's that's a very good or or you know blueberry pies or whatever you want to say that you can use as a a form of barter. So um, so now that we got the Bitcoin thing knocked out of the way. So Robert, you said that you believe that money is a anything that would be accepted as a means of exchange between two individuals that agree on that um, as a as a medium of exchange, I guess. Well, on the value, they have to agree upon the value because. Perfect example is saying instead of pies, if I wanted to give you a pie for a car, mm-hmm. I don't think that you're necessarily going to agree on the value of my pie. <laughs> How hungry I am. No, you're correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for the car. So, I mean, that's why and I, uh, that throughout history we tend to use precious metals as a standard for the exchange, um, even though um, I still think that if we were going to try and reinvent money, if you will, in today's terms, mm-hmm. uh, localized currency, competing currencies, even within a, um, uh, a local area. Sure. Um, and even even competing currencies in the same area. Um, you know, some people could be trying to push the, you know, gold as the way that they want to spend and buy, while other people are pushing cryptocurrencies or a local dollar um, like they did in some some city in Colorado, there's dollars that can be spent only in the town. Sure. But, I mean, it, it saves this town crap loads of money within its own, you know, borders. And then the bank even does an exchange rate for them and everything. Right. And, and with today's technology, we, we, could, we could definitely make the argument that either every town or every state or every county could have its own currency because the, the way that you could exchange those currencies very readily – by utilizing the technology that we have, could be very, very easy, especially if you had a, a marketplace where all of these um, currencies were, were traded or, or had an established value. Then you could have a mobile phone on your app, or excuse me, a mobile phone on your app. That was awesome. A, an app on your mobile phone that could, that could do something like that, that could make that money into the, let's say, if I go from Georgia to Michigan to see Josh. And Michigan's got a currency that's a little bit more valuable than Georgia's. Then I could still use my Georgia currency up there, and it would actually get, you know, um, I guess transferred into the um, the Michigan currency before I spend my money, or vice versa. So I think that one of the solutions, and and we can talk about this as a solution, uh, competing currencies is definitely one of the solutions that I would um, that I would definitely vote for, not having some one monolithic ennis, you know, entity control the currency and credit of everything. Now, what the argument against it would be, I guess, would be that, well, it makes it very simple. Well, we've seen where simplicity gets us. It gets you into an oligarchical situation where you have one hierarchy of people, a super elitist class, controlling the currency and credit of not only the U.S. dollar – but the currency and credit of the world if they get into positions of the World Bank, if they get in positions of the Bank of International Settlements and, 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 and larger entities like that, where those guys are the ones that are controlling basically um, the, way that, um, the way that countries shape their industry, the way that countries shape their, um, shape their technology because they get loans from the World Bank and the IMF. 
So what would you guys say to, number one, to competing currencies, and number two, how do we decentralize the power away from this pyramidal structure that, is, that has taken years to, be, you know, years to be put in place, but as we always see, the, the top of the pyramid doesn't care about human uh, life. It doesn't care about the human value. All it cares about is, uh, is profit, whether it's you know, the banking elite funding both sides of the, um, the Russian Revolution or if it's the banking elite funding both sides of, the, of, the, um, of World War II. Either way, they're looking to make money, and they're not looking to make uh, anything or build anything for humanity. They're just looking out for profit. So what would you say, Josh? Number one, competing currencies, and number two, the hierarchical system. Well, I guess based on the three names that or names of institutions that that you touched on there, the Federal Reserve, the IMF, and the World Bank, uh, you know, as a student of history, I realize that all three of those institutions are essentially created, founded, funded, and propagated by a single group, uh, the Anglo-American establishment. Uh, so, if people really are interested in kind of probing that rabbit hole and finding out where your money actually goes and uh, how this all relates to eugenics and uh, the British elephant in the American living room, as Richard Andrew Grove would would call it, uh, then that's that's essentially your your homework assignment. As for competing currencies, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a fabulous idea. Uh, I think that some of these competing currencies, uh, even throughout history. Uh, have have been utter abject failures, uh, even things that are presented as successes, right? Like uh, the colonial script program uh, that Benjamin Franklin supposed, was supposedly an, an ardent supporter of, and Bill still put all those quotes in the Money Masters. Turns out all those quotes are uh, false. Uh, they, they, he, ben Franklin never said any of those things, and, and the quotes themselves were fabricated from other sources. Um, maybe not Mr. Still's fault, potentially quotes that were fabricated many, many years in advance, and he just kind of lazily pulled them up and slapped them in his documentary. Sure. Um, but but it was an attempt at something. So I, I guess what I think cri- competing currencies are wonderful, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that all the – what I really wanted to get at when I, when I said, I guess, let's explore the monetary history of America mm-hmm. is how we got from constitutional gold and silver only coinage – Mm-hmm. Uh, this supposedly pure system to where we are today, uh, and and some of the solutions essentially being uh, being red herrings, uh, things like the gold standard uh, is is largely advocated today by people like Peter Schiff. Uh, things like the colonial script or, script or a credit based standard, mm-hmm. uh, which is essentially what Bitcoin is. It's a digitally liquid credit class. Again, why I think the distinction between money and credit is very very important and money and currency is very important, which is the colonial script-based kind of idea. I think Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have a great deal more utility uh, than, than colonial script, but there's a reason why all three of those things uh, were, were historical failures, colonial script, gold, and silver. Mm-hmm. All right? would, you, would, you say that, would you say that silver was a failure because silver actually never really got its never really got its due here in America, driven by the oligarchs to keep it underneath the gold standard because obviously whoever controls the, the gold is going to have the most wealth. And the reason that they pushed for you know, when it, William Jennings Bryant was the one that pushed for the silver standard, right? Is that correct? Am I getting my history names right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right in, in terms of the, the silver standard as well. You know, it, it, was, it posed a threat. Uh, and I guess that's what I'm trying to say is true solutions Mm-hmm. Uh, are suppressed and uh, solutions that 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 you know are behoove uh, power to the powers that be sure. or, or generate power for the powers that be are allowed to to kind of bubble to the surface. That's- so when we see things like the suppression 
of uh, the gold and silver price to this day. When we see things like how was uh, the silver, how are gold and silver prices set? <coughs> gold prices set, Josh. Just to let the people know. And, and silver. Oh, okay. So let let the people know out there that are listening in the audience. How are gold and silver prices set? Once a week, by the way. Uh, once a week, every Tuesday morning in London, uh, the LBMA fixes the gold and silver prices for the international market, and it is done by what family exclusively, Jake? The Rothschild, is it the Rothschilds or the Rothschilds? The Rothschild family, yeah. It's a London-based firm. Oh, yeah. There we go. Sorry. Yep. English dynasty, wrong one. All right, so. All right. <laughs> I, heard the, I heard they were lizard people. N- no, they're coneheads. Come on, Karen. Who did oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, coneheads. Unbelievable! Unbelievable! The disinfo we have out there in the truth movement. All right, so um, do you want to you want to wrap up and then we'll go to Robert really quick and get his ideas. Sorry, I I, I guess just wrapping up. You know the I, the historical example of the death of silver as money sure. from 1880 to 1930 ish when China stopped using it. Correct. You know largely because Britain. Uh, the Anglo-American establishment stole all of China's silver through the opium trade. Um, we, we, we saw this elimination of silver as money. And the way that that, that happened was silver still circulated. The silver certificate program was around in America. Silver trade dollars were still being used. The, uh, the, yeah, moneyed interest simply made it unprofitable to hold silver. Correct. And, you know, we're seeing the same things with, with long-term gold and silver holders still to this day. Uh, I, don't, I can't, you know, substantiate any of these claims because um, the, the cryptocurrency market is so utterly speculative these days. Um, but we see kind of the same thing potentially in cryptocurrencies, uh, where the second they become, you know, uh, relevant to the mainstream, uh, it's nothing but a slew of bad news and smackdowns. Right. Uh, so and, and it's and it's to the point now where mining operations, you know, CPU and GPU mining operations for cryptocurrencies used to be profit, profitable mm-hmm. only a few short months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's very very expensive to to get on this train to the point where a lot of people who who inv- have invested a lot of capital into them are saying this isn't for me anymore. Right. So this is how this is how solutions real solutions are suppressed. So, you know, if we really want to fix things, we, we might have to bite the bullet and, and take some losses to our, uh, to, to, to our allocated accounts. And I, don't, I know a lot of Americans don't like hearing that, but aren't you already losing a lot? Oh, but that's, that's, the, that's the point that I wanted to get to, and I was hoping that we would get there tonight, is that eventually we're going to have to, you know, everybody calls it progress when you're moving forward. But if we're moving forward on the wrong path, is it really progress? No, we're actually creating more and more debt. We're creating more and more unattainable um unattainable resources here in in the United States where we're we're creating bubbles be, uh, upon bubbles and then you have Wall Street speculating on the bubbles riding them up until they burst and then it's up to us the taxpayers to quote unquote bail them out and i really think it's it's good for us to define the term bailout people when when you hear um financial institutions and government say that it's a bailout don't just believe that they make that money up out of nowhere, print it, and give it to the banks. They sign your butt onto that debt. So whether it's you, whether it's your kids, whether it's your kids' kids, whether it's your kids' kids' kids, somebody is going to have to pay that debt back. Now, it looks like free money on the surface because behind the scenes, they're going in their little ledger, and they're writing down $17 trillion next to the American people. So, Robert, we covered a lot of ground. Um what do you got, man? Well, uh, I, I, as far as uh, cryptocurrencies being speculative, I will agree that they are highly speculative, but oh, so fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's just the gambler in me. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as 
money. If we, ha- if we have to fix it, this is going to sound strange, we first need to abolish it. We need to abolish the, 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 the current common accepted term of money. Okay. Um, this idea that someone else is going to set this standard for us of what we deem valuable. Um, that is, that is going to be the, the only thing that actually fixes things in the long run. Until then, we're just throwing patches on a sinking boat. Right. Um, so, it, Robert, I'm sorry. I hate to interrupt you stream, midstream of thought, but I, what you're saying, I think, just to clarify, is that throughout history, I, at least all the examples I can think of, money has been defined by nation states correct. in almost every example. So you're saying do away with that. Specifically, right? Specifically. Get, okay. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, exactly. Get rid of that specifically. And I mean, and the argument can be even made that I'm not talking about getting rid, rid of centralized authority, even though that would be wonderful too. But uh, <laughs> what I'm, what the argument that I'm at least making is that this centralized standard of value, um, and I think that we have to let the chips fall, fall where they may. Will some areas be hard, hard hit? Hard hit. Yes, absolutely, they will be hard hit. But you know what's funny? Places that have been hard hit for hundreds of years would immediately become freaking rich because they're sitting on so much freaking commodity that they're not allowed to determine the value of. Correct. Um, so, I mean, what does that say for middle-class middle, middle class America? You're going down, buddy. Yeah. Uh, you know, your barista job isn't going to, uh, uh, going to give out much um, value to the people at large. Um, but at the same time, in the long term, what would happen is, is, is pure free market capitalism in, in its finest. And you would see people go, no, over here, you know, water is in high demand. So water is where we base our freaking demand of value, you know. And, uh, and over here, we got plenty of food. So we don't, we're not worried about the price of food. We're worried about, you know, uh, copper because we're trying to run electricity through our freaking towns, you know. And, and so forth and so on. And that ultimately is the solution. Actually another show altogether, the copper show. And yeah. <laughs> energy, that's a whole other show altogether. But uh, to, to just to sum up my thesis, mm-hmm. um, the question that we really need to be asking is how mm-hmm. do we abolish that as individuals? And I think for now, cryptocurrencies, gold and silver, our best bet to try and take away power from the centralized value system. So basically, we just made a complete, um, we, we touched on almost every bullet point, but we made a complete circle saying that the only way that we will be able to remove this centralized authority and the central planning, quote-unquote, this central economic planning system is by creating alternatives and competition to the system itself, correct? Are you on correct. There? Well, and, and what Robert just said is so it's so profound in the sense that uh, we can replace so many aspects of modern financial life with those three things, uh, complete irregardless of you know the that's you know, regardless irregardless doesn't make sense regardless of um, it's okay I made up words earlier it's fine. I, it's it's yeah. I woke up at like smart. four this morning. <laughs> Makes you sound smart. People are like, man, that's a big word. Is that mm-hmm. really a word? What does that mean? Like when Charles Barkley says verticality on ESPN, right? Yeah, it, it's when I get all feeling supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. 
Correct. <laughs> no, but sorry. Really and finish with Mary Poppins with the bit. Go ahead. Oh God. No, but it's it's important because you know we can replace daily transactions with cryptocurrencies. Sure. And we can replace long-term savings, your IRAs, your 401ks, your your Roths with with gold and silver. You know they both have their place. One is generational savings, mm-hmm. long-term savings that you're going to keep in a in a chest buried somewhere and pass it on to your children. Like you know, that will retain its purchasing power. That will retain its purchasing power, and, and one is great for that. Gold and silver are wonderful for that. And cryptocurrencies, while they're not you know, money in the Rothbardian sense, they're a very digitally liquid credit class that retains some value at least. I mean, Bitcoin has gone down to .000001 cents, but that was, uh, I, I believe at that time, the high was something like 30. Uh, there's certainly a lot more trading volume involved now. But the point is, is that cryptocurrencies, at least in the modern Western world, could replace cash tomorrow if everyone installed a wallet client and the price would stabilize overnight uh if the trading volume picked up on that on that largest scale don't worry jp morgan chase has got their cryptocurrency they're going to be rolling out here pretty soon they've had oh joy yeah oh yeah just yeah 1999 right handling the ebt cards and also handling your currency they love you to death anyway so all right guys um let's close this out um we we obviously covered a lot of topics there i do want to get into the bundy situation josh you and i talked about this on the last show the The coke part of it or the what the coke brothers part of it that's the only recent development i've seen well the no fly zone part too but Uh, all right so no but just just to recap um for people that were I, i guess paying attention or understand what's going on out there uh the bundy uh, I guess dispute is over land rights, water rights, and the centralized authority, of course, says that we own everything on this planet and that you have to pay us rent, which we already do that in order of property tax and other things. So they actually had a big showdown the other day, and there was a big victory, so to speak, for, for liberty, and people like um, Glenn Beck are saying that he still needs to pay his million dollars in order to be a good citizen and steward of the land or whatever. But um, where do you think this this all goes? What's the what's the Koch brothers connection? Is it? Um, let me guess. The Koch brothers are going to build the uh, the solar panels or something like that, Josh, in in conjunction with the Chinese government. Well, well it, the reason I say it's interesting is because I guess supposedly a lot of left wing media websites are reporting now that the Koch brothers are coming to the financial aid of Clive and Bundy. They all um, want to. I mean, it's like it's like the default. I mean, I'm sorry, leftist people, whatever you want to classify yourself as, but the Koch brothers don't run the freaking world. Okay, they're they're like middlemen. Blasphemy. Yeah, they they are middle they are middlemen, and they certainly historically the their father as well as as the Koch brothers themselves. Their father, of course, the founder of the a co-founder of the John Birch Society and a major financial mm-hmm. contributor to that society. Sure. which puts out disinformation at the behest of the Anglo-American establishment. Right. Um, you know, they are middlemen. They are middle management players in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what makes this, these connections so kind of uncomfortable and unsettling to me. Because mm-hmm. we have on, on, on one side, we've got this, uh, this Agenda 21-based Soros initiative, Chinese uh, generals and Harry Reid all mixed up in it to, to eminent domain this land for solar panels. Sure. And now on the other side... We have uh, the Koch brothers, the, uh, an organization that is by no means benevolent, coming to this formerly just cause 
it almost seems like there we're being set up for uh, for some horrible controlled opposition on both sides with this one. Well, it just, I mean, what do you expect? I mean, what do you expect when there's any type of grassroots type of rebellion, um, especially something that could set brush fires in the minds of men all across the United States? It's going to get co-opted. I, I, I mean, I should have even mentioned it on my show. I was like, this is, and you and I actually talked about this being a flashpoint, and they could use it as a flashpoint, which is what, as we're seeing these developments now, it looks like that it's going to be now it's going to turn into a controlled propaganda machine. And me personally, the way that the the way that the BLM is acting, the Bureau of Land Management, which for some reason they have SWAT teams and and armored trucks and all kinds of crazy stuff. The bureaucracy in this country is just retarded. I saw that the post office just got some more bullets, so whatever, people, whatever. Just just arm everybody but the citizens. Just, you know, they can have guns because they work for the state, and you can't have any because you're an individual, and that's that's all that there is. But I, I think that you and I are um, on, on the same wavelength here, Josh, is that it's going to turn into something that could be uh, just propaganda, and in order to distract us from from things that are real victories and and real movement. Go ahead, Robert. I do want to point out that this whole Bundy situation did take place just as the Ukraine decided to revolt against uh, the Crimea uh, uh, annexing. And um, And just before Blood Moon. How dare we have all these tie-ins for our audience, people? I love you guys out there. Please share the show with people you know, people you like, because we're we're mentioning some really good stuff here. The the Blood Moon connection is really the key one, though. Super creepy. <laughs> super, super creepy. All right, astro. All right, astrological boy, you go sit over there for a minute. We're gonna talk. real men. I'm kidding. I have no idea. I know, you're just totally. Joking. That's why I told you to go sit in the corner. Continue, Robert. Didn't mean to cut you off. But I'm not taking away from what's going on in Bundy either, um, because I was accused of that a few days ago when at first the reports came in that they were backing off, but they weren't giving back the cows. They were still going to sell them and only give them back a part of the money that it was earned, mm-hmm. right? And I went on record saying, I don't think that's a win. They still own the land he was using. Mm-hmm. They still have his cows, mm-hmm. and they still steal from us, and they spent more money trying to grab his cows than they did that he actually owed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then what I will call a win is when the militias who arrived to support him then armed themselves and went back and got the cows. Right. And, I'm and, sorry, that's a win. And, there's, no, <laughs> there's no way to take that away from them. And they just faced down the bureaucracy. And, and the bureaucracy, from, from what I understand, I haven't seen the video yet, but I've got it, I got it queued up in my YouTube. But from what I sa- understand, the bureaucracy was telling these people, because I was watching Kokesh's um, uh, coverage of it, and he said that um, the bureaucracy, they had these uh, guys lined up with guns, and then they put the women in the front. They all vol- all these women volunteered to be in the front because who's going to shoot a woman? And they just said, we're coming to get the cows. And they're like, if you guys take any more steps forward, you need to disperse or we have a, a piece of paper here signed by a, a, a guy that's an actor in a play that says that we can shoot you guys. And for people that don't understand um, courts or the history of courts, I was talking about a judge who's in a costume um, sitting on top of a... Um, British uh, warship, but that's you know that's neither here nor there. Or is it is it is it really um, maritime anymore? Is it still maritime law for us? I would assume. Uh, I mean, supposedly, I've I've heard the theory. You know, well, whip out your Black Law dictionary and 
check. <laughs> I don't look. I got the seventh edition, and it's like sixteen thousand pages. So anyway, um, I guess Robert's gonna go jump somewhere. Um, so what? What I was getting at was that you have these people actually having a win and a victory, showing that if you go up against the state, if you go up against the state in numbers, and everybody remains peaceful and everybody does their due diligence, just like V for Vendetta. That the state can't, and they have to be armed. One hundred percent, one hundred percent, and and it's and that is very good, Robert, for jumping in and, and correcting me there. You have to have an armed citizenry because, as this one gentleman, Doctor Carol Quigley, said, Josh, what did he say? That the only way that you can have a free society is by having a what? An armed society. That is correct, and he was just the doctor of history at Georgetown and Bill Clinton's mentor. So that and, and a former professor at Yale and Harvard, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't have any connections to anybody or anything like that. Jake, I, I hate to interrupt you, but did you happen to see um, InfoWars put out a video? It was a six-minute video essentially compiling the end of that protest and the climax where the cattle were released. Uh, well, the reason I bring it up is because I, I saw this video late on Sunday or Monday night and uh, or, or morning and brought it out and showed my showed my dad and I said watch this it's literally like something out of a western it's like all these people you know riding <laughs> freaking horses around oh, I saw that mm-hmm. yeah chasing off these these armed thugs and taking these cattle back and you think about it from not only uh, uh, if I'm thinking like a mainstream propagandist here, not only thinking of it as a as a human human property rights issue, mm-hmm. um, but just as a as a as a marketable human interest piece. Sure. The fact that that scene is so marketable, and the fact that you know the mainstream media won't touch that that scene with it with a ten foot pole, and certainly won't take it to its ultimate conclusion that this is about ultimately Agenda Twenty One. Correct. No, absolutely, one hundred percent correct. You know, the Rio Conference already stated that their goal is to move us all into compact cities, get us off the land, move us into areas where they can have what they call sustainable development, which means that they have control over all of your energy, all of your all of your food rations, basically everything. They control your life. So it's, once again, as Josh and I always come back to, it is what? It's a new, brave world? What? Brave new world. Yes. Serfdom, baby. Now, come on. It's just fiction, Josh. It's just keep, keep calm and slave on, Jake. Yeah, he just... <laughs> <laughs> you just wrote a fiction book, Josh. That's all it was. It was just pure fiction. Okay, so Robert, um, Josh made a really good point while you were away. Um, the the clip that Infowars compiled, the six minute clip of the basically the showdown at the ranch, and we're going to do a little bit of overdrive. So people, um, if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, uh, be sure to uh, go to my website, wearenotcattle.net. You can see it there, or you can check the YouTube channel sometime tomorrow, and I should have the video uploaded there where you can see all of our bright and shiny faces because we're so, so fresh and so clean. Anyway, so what happened at the very end was you had the cavalry come in, literal like rancher guys coming in on horseback, um, uh, armed Armed citizens, um, most of our police would call us civilians now because we're in a battle zone or whatever. So you have the armed citizens, and then they come up and they take the cows away. And Josh made a good point that the the mainstream media won't touch this with a 10-foot pole because of the images that it recalls for just um, modern Americans. You have armed goons that look like military militarized police, which they were. I mean, they were all in like green 
camo gear with the with the German like look like fatigues, yeah. Yeah, look like German SS helmets and all that stuff. So they're sitting there and they're standing behind their cars and their riot shields, you know, pointing guns at people. And um and then you have like the true Americans from, you know, quote unquote true Americans riding up with American flags, don't tread on me flags, and releasing these So Josh makes a really good point. The mainstream media won't touch this. And you made a good point about, you know, deflecting from from what's going on in the Ukraine. So what what would you say? Why would you say that the the mainstream media would stay away from images like that? Do you think that it would, might actually, you know, do one of those evil things like uh, create brush fires in the minds of men? Robert, you had me muted. Sorry, I I, I had myself on mute. Uh, happens to the best of us. I, I, Every time. No, I want to get Robert, Robert's take on this. What what would you say? Why do you? Why do you think the mainstream media would stay away from those kind of images that they were putting out with the people on horseback? The once again the armed citizens going in and and um, and standing standing their ground against the uh, against the invasion forces of Agenda 21 and and UNESCO. Um, well, I mean it, it, it's pretty simple. I mean it, it, you control the information that they're seeing. Right. Uh, it's it you know and if they show not only people standing up to these authority figures. Um, and winning on top of that, pushing them back. I don't even want to use the word win. I mean, I hate to take this away from them. You know, I'm not trying to do that. I think what they did was successful. Ha-ha. It's a very good I think what they did. I think what they did was successful, mm-hmm. um, but the state still exists. The, the BLM still exists. They can still come back and take the cows. Mm-hmm. A win is when we push back so hard they just get rid of the BLM. Or the they just and becomes public again. Right, or they or they disarm them, or they disarm all these federal agencies. Like, why the hell does the EPA need a SWAT team? Somebody, yeah, they don't need one. Somebody, please answer that for me. Or the IRS, meth labs, duh. <laughs> IRS, we know why they need a SWAT team. Yeah, but you know when we really when we really talk about this and we talk about this one venture as a success, which it certainly is. You know, the cattle are back with their rightful owner, and they're being grazed and worked as they have for hundreds of years on that same piece of property. Uh, that's great. Um, but I can't help. And Jake, we discussed it. Uh, you know, uh, on a on a in a private matter. Uh, I can't help but see how this does not escalate to some type of horrible situation, a flashpoint at some point. And the reason I say that is because, you know, we have all these, this kind of circumstantial rumor-based evidence that, you know, they are gearing up for a much larger conflict, um, but there's still a no-fly zone over the Bundy Ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, this is not, they're treating this like occupied territory, sure. you know, like, like it's a country that we're at war with, and seeing as there has no, been no ceasefire declared um simply a retreat from the front lines mm-hmm. uh i i don't think that that means the battle's over by a, by a long stretch and i think that you and i both would agree on that and that's why i brought up waco before because i do think that eventually ruby ridge or any of the other ones thing like that anytime you have somebody trying to stand up against the state against the state's will and especially if you make the state look bad if you make them if you make them look out to be the bad guy of course, the mainstream media won't show them being the bad guys. They'll just demonize the people and saying that they still owe the, the private Federal Reserve $1.2 million and it has to go to the federal government, not going to not going to Nevada or not going to the county where the actual property is. It's got to go to the federal government for some odd reason. But um, 
I think that, um, unfortunately, I was telling my friends today, I'm like, I think that there's no way that this doesn't end badly. And I hope that I'm really wrong, but I just I just don't see there's a way that... I guess the only way that it wouldn't end badly is that there's enough press out there to not spin it, to not spin the narrative. Because the narrative's been out, and the narrative is being propagated even through so quote-unquote libertarians like Glenn Beck that says, well, he still needs to pay that money. I mean... Glenn Beck, we all knew who you were, and I called you out the moment that you were a self-proclaimed libertarian after you did your hit piece on the FEMA camps. So I knew exactly who you were. You were a shock jock that went to CNN, that went to Fox, that went to Fox in the afternoon. Now you got your own show, and you basically ripped off Alex Jones. You're Alex Jones light with a, with a white goatee. So whatever, dude. Whatever. Uh-huh. All right, Robert. Uh, closing comments on the on the ranch, and also if you want to comment on the Ukraine, we can uh, we can comment on that and find out where that's going. Well, um, closing comments on the ranch is mm-hmm. what they have done was highly successful, and the reason that the media isn't showing the the general masses is because this is catching fire in America. Oh, just um, before you continue, I, I watched CNN all dur- through lunch today, Josh. They still have not found the missing plane. Oh, how? <laughs> I bet I bet they're sending down submarines right now. They actually were. Well, <laughs> oh, uh, I could write this shit, man. So, uh, what they did was a success. The reason it's not being shown to the people is because this is catching fire in America, and all this would do is throw gasoline gasoline on the fire. Yeah, people um, are tired of this stuff, man. You know, so if they showed these pictures, people would go, "Hey." Maybe I can get a bunch of my buddies together and not pay that traffic ticket. Hey, maybe I can get them. You know what I would really like to see? Closing arguments. I would like to see these militias now go and get every victimless crime uh, um, person sitting in jail right now out of jail. Just show up at the jail. Like, we're here for everybody who's in here without a victim. No, no, no. That would be the conscious revolution that we're all pushing for. I had a communist friend of mine ask me, he's like, Libertarians, what's your revolution? And I said it's um, it's basically uh, non-violence, non-coercion, and self-ownership. And he's like, no, revolution has to be an overthrow. I'm like, well, what do you think we're living in now, dude? We're living in like Slave Factory 101. That would be a complete revolution. That would be a mental revolution. Well, I, my thing is, is, I mean, they're technically right. Revolutions in the past have always been an overthrow and replacement. Correct. Uh, but I'm not looking... Like like Christopher Cantwell did so eloquently in that uh, um, you know violently overthrow the government article, even though I still emotionally disagree with it and can't find any logical fallacies in it yet. But I'm still trying. I'm actually in personal contact with him, going, wait, 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 but what about this? And then he'll give me a rebuttal, and I'd be like, damn it. All right, but <laughs> but um, the the what I want is a overthrow, and then stop there. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to replace it with anything. I'm sorry. Could could I could I uh, borrow the words of a great poet by the name of Robert Frost? Uh, to yes, yes, you may in one second. But what do you do with the power vacuum, Robert? And then go ahead with your. Well, oh, go ahead, Josh. Hit me. Oh no, that's fine. Go ahead. No, hit me with your hit me with your quote. I want to. I want. And then I want to get Robert's idea of the power vacuum. Uh, oh yeah. All I wanted to say is that uh, he he wrote a poem by the name of a semi-revolution, and it goes like this: I advocate a semi-revolution. The trouble with a total revolution, ask any reputable Rosicrucian, is that it brings the same class up on top. Executives of skillful execution will therefore plan to go halfway and stop. 
Yes, revolutions are the only salves, but they're the one thing that should be done by halves. You need to send me that, please, because I'm going to post that in, in my friend's uh, thread, just so that, he understands. That, that, was, that was beautiful, man. But that's what I'm advocating for. I, I, I want us to overthrow. And then you were saying about a power vacuum. Oh, but the power vacuum will always suck up. Not if you destroy the vacuum. You know, not, not if you get rid of, of that area. You don't allow anything to reside there. There's, there's nothing, you know. So you, just, so you basically go for what Kokesh is saying, and you say the peaceful dissolution of the federal government, and then it's all about the states from here on out. Well, again, I, uh, I, I think that, uh, that local governments will and should exist in a completely voluntary society. But again, they have to be voluntary. Right, but um, I mean, you, you you can't. We can't go from having a centralized authority, especially with all the the brainwashed masses that we have out there pandering to the centralized authority, having this proverbial self-esteem that they don't have real self-esteem. They have to have gratitudes and they have to have uh, accolades. They have to have pieces of paper that hang on walls in order for them to get self-esteem. They have to have people of authority tell them they're doing a good job. That's why you have so many sycophants that hang around Washington, D.C., because they're just little children. They're stunted little children. that They need to be patted on the head all the time and say, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. Yeah, I call them attaboys and attagirls. No, that's exactly what they are. So, so you, you can't – my question is if you have something like that, if you have what you're talking about where you have a revolution to where you, you actually do dismantle the federal government, you have to have something in place from a local standpoint because at least locally you have more power and control, and you can and then you can start the process of educating people to basically deprogramming them from what they've learned about authority and what they've learned about self-ownership and how, we've, how they basically demonize the idea of, of, of educating yourself because you always have these quote-unquote specialists or you always have the, the, um, the people in the aristocracy that, are, that know more than you so always deflect toward the expert. You, know, you, can, you can all be an expert. You can all be anything that you want to be, but you have to put forth the effort. And I think that that's what we need to get across to people. And right now in America, people don't want effort. They want I mean, we see it. We see it in the population. They but what I mean, but what I mean by you know, get rid of the state and replace it with nothing, sure. is that we don't have those seats of power anymore. If if it's voluntary, if everybody in my neighborhood, right, decide to follow a certain set set, uh, set of standards, mm -hmm. and we agree upon it, nobody has power over the other. Even if we say, hey, you know what, this guy's really good with money. How about you handle? The, the community's finances that we voluntarily throw in a pool for for the local school or the local whatever, right? And, but that person has no power just because he has the money because the second he violates the contract, the second that he, we are not happy, one person is not happy with him, they can step out of the contract. Well, we can do that well, now. Well, you can recall people now. I mean, we have that kind of authority now. It's just that people don't realize and don't execute those authorities. So what makes it so okay. I'm just once again playing devil's advocate as I always do. What makes it so different in your in your scenario than the scenario that we currently have? Sorry. Go ahead. Ro Robert, did you want to say something? Because no, you go ahead first. You 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 seem that you wanted to say something. Yeah, sorry, because from a from a, a, a I I'm going to I'm going to nibble at your line here, Jake, that you've cast out because from a a tactical standpoint, I I can see where your devil's advocate position comes from uh, most certainly. And I think it's why quite frankly 
anarcho-capitalism, libertarianism, voluntary, voluntarism, libertarianism, obviously, with a little L there, uh, is not taken seriously by so many other revolutionary philosophies because it really doesn't take this into, into question. Uh, if we're serious about you know, these ideas of, of freedom and virtue and voluntarism, we have to realize that this is essentially the only continent where that school of thought has continued to evolve for the, for the past 200 years. It's the only one where it still exists in a meaningful way, and it's the only country, even though it has a very small chance of becoming that ideal, it's the only place currently that it can happen within the next, I would say, 100 years at the very least. So there are going to be other nation states, even hostile nation states, that would see that as, as, as a prime example or a prime opportunity to turn America into, into, into a colony, much like Africa, where they're, be, where they're used for their labor, which is obviously what's happening to America slowly but surely. We're going to see this transfer of wealth and power from west to east, and we're going to become the new slave labor. But the thing that I really wanted to point out is that there is an example of the semi-revolution, what Robert is talking about, at least somewhat in practice, and that's in the Soviet Union. When it was collapsed over the, over the course of 20 years That's true. Um, by creating local economies, by firing up old Soviet factories and running them at night to produce black market goods and starting local economies to replace the state. We don't have anything like that in America. And the reason why the Soviets then, uh, realized that they needed to do this is because they, they knew uh, with every aspect of their life that they were living under tyranny. Sure. Americans don't know that they're living under tyranny, which is why they will never, ever do that, at least in a meaningful way, until it hits their pocketbooks. Absolutely. And that's why, that's why Aldous Huxley called his revolution the ultimate revolution. And in a sense, it kind of is, because these people have been sold their slavery. So even, even, as, their, even as their pocketbooks... They're servitude. Absolutely. Absolutely. In his, uh, in his dry, pseudo-British accent. All right. So here you go, Robert. Here, here's, here's the only solution that I think we do have. Are you guys ready for this? Hold on. Give everyone so much. I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... Well, I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Oh, how'd you do? How'd you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, realize... please, good people... I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order, oh, who does he think he is? I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings? Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake. 
her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? There you go. That's that's what we have to strive for right there. The autonomous collective, the dictatorship. That's what we have to that's what we have to strive for. Anarcho syndicalism. Uh, I do have to say though that if a purple haired lady in a lake does throw you a sword, that does mean something. <laughs> Either you ate too many mushrooms or the spirits are playing with your brain. <laughs> and to that. All right, so now that we've we've started the show with humor, we end the show with humor. But everything in between was a very pertinent um, conversation. I do appreciate you guys for being on. So um, closing thoughts, um, guys, on on the money and on um, the Ukraine. We actually didn't even get to the Ukraine. Maybe we'll cover that on Thursday. Um, closing thoughts, guys. Uh, Josh, we'll start with you and then go to Robert, and then, um, and then we'll wrap it up. To quote Lester Freeman from The Wire, you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the fuck it's going to take you. So... <laughs> Please follow the money. Follow all forms of money, credit or otherwise. Yep. Uh, follow follow their history and uh, follow the names involved, and you'll get somewhere. Absolutely. And what's a good Rosetta Stone for people that want to follow the names of history? Uh, ooh, I would say the brain. Oh, the brain is a very good one. Okay. I would say tragedy and hope's the brain. Yeah. Tragedy and hope in the the brain. I will actually link to. I'll actually link to his brain. Actually. Uh, so for people that don't know what we're talking about, um, Peace Revolution did a brain which basically ties in all of the big players throughout history with the uh, foundations, the endowments, all of their different parts and moving apparatus. So you can see how everything ties in, and it gets very, very in-depth. So um, have a, either a lot of coffee with you or... Um, DMAE. Yes, a lot of DMAE with you because it's going to be a lot of intel. So, um, Robert, what would, you, uh, what would you like to wrap up with, man? I'm going to wrap up with an explanation of uh, Journalistic Revolution's call sign and why we always end with, don't look to live free sometime in the future, live free now. And it's because if you want to be free in the future, you have to act as if you are free now. Because that is the only way these systems will be torn down. That is the only way new systems will be put up. It is the only way that you can take your power back, the power that is rightfully yours, over your life, and then teach your children and your children's children how to do it as well. Amen to that, man. Amen. So that'll do it for every. That'll do it for the show, everybody. Once again, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. <laughs> As uh, Robert does a um, shirt pop for legalized <laughs> victims, 
You know that we've turned into goofy land here at the at the podcast when when we run about fifteen minutes over and people start doing shirt pops, <laughs> or like we're playing in the NBA championship or something. But, Philosophical pimping, baby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I would I would agree with Robert in the fact that if you act like a slave, you're going to be treated like a slave. So act like a free person. Um, share information with your fellow human beings out there. Interact with people. Make sure that they understand where the Federal Reserve comes from. Make sure they understand what the income tax is. And I think that once we start spreading knowledge around the around the United States and people start accepting it, especially when they start to see that the state is not out for their best interests, you're going to set these little brush fires or these little seeds in their mind, and eventually they're going to have them come to uh, lay root, and they're going to flower and blossom, and eventually they're going to come back and start asking you questions, much like what's happened to me, um, I can't even tell you, numerous times, probably 15 or 20, just random emails that I'll get saying, man, when I started listening to your show, I thought you were a little weird, and I thought it was a little out there, and now I'm starting to see all this stuff, and I listen all uh, on the regular, so thank you for what we do. And uh, guys, it really is about, uh, it is about the information, it's about the people, and it's about bringing people together to understand what freedom really is. And that's, I think, what's, what our whole big goal is. I don't care if I reach one person a day, 10 people a day, 10 million, it doesn't matter to me. The only thing that I care about is that after this show, that it is, number one, stimulated you to a, a, a different perspective than what you're used to, and number two, that has provoked you to go out and learn something for yourself. Because if we're not learning something every day, then why are we here? So thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. And we'll see you Thursday night, 9 o'clock. And pretty soon you will hear me on Liberty Movement Radio exclusively starting in, um, starting in May. So take care, everybody. Peace, love, and liberty.